One of the things I love about Jesus, and I'm personally very thankful for, is how he intentionally, almost even goes out of his way, to use misfits. That Jesus chooses the most unlikely people to do the most extraordinary of things. It's amazing that God would use a slave named Joseph to save the entire world from a coming famine. That he would take a dejected and self-conscious wanderer named Moses to deliver his people from bondage. That he would take a young shepherd boy named David and anoint him to be his king over Israel. I mean, how amazing, really, that Jesus would specifically choose a group of uneducated, redneck fishermen to be the foundation of his church. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to, wise the, to, put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, God uses misfits. Really, so no one could ever mistake the origin of the work and the power. This morning, I want to examine the life of one of my favorite, personal favorite New Testament misfits, a man by the name of Philip. Now, in order to kind of provide a bit of framework for our Bible study this morning, I want to, I'm going to emphasize two key components to Philip's story. First, we're going to look at the ways in which Philip's life was used by God, but I also want to look at the interesting mechanisms that would keep Philip right in the center of God's will. The interesting way that Philip's life would be led from one movement, one season to another. I think it's very interesting. Now, there is one of the apostles, one of Jesus' original 12, whose name is also Philip. This is not the Philip I'm referring to. Our Philip is first introduced to us in Acts chapter 6. If you'd look at it, look at it with me, verse 1, we're told now in those days... When the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitudes of the disciples, and they said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven good men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, and we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this saying pleased the whole multitude, and so they chose Stephen, we're told a, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and this man named Philip. Now, biblically speaking, we know absolutely nothing about Philip before his first mention here in Acts chapter 6. Aside from the Bible, historically, we have zero records or accounts of his family, or his heritage, his upbringing. No account even of when Philip, this man Philip, became a follower of Jesus. That said, there are a few things that we can't assume. Now, whether it was the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached to the multitude, and an amazing 3,000 souls were saved, or some other occasion, a day did arise when Philip, 
He heard the gospel preached, the good news. And he rejected the religion of his fathers. There was a day when Philip made a decision to repent of his sin and chose to take up his cross and become a follower of Jesus. He also then joined the Jerusalem church. (laughs) There was only one, so his choice was easy. He was likely discipled by one of the apostles. Philip started just looking for ways that he could live out his faith within the community of believers. Most interestingly, Philip's story, it begins no different than your story or mine. Philip, this man Philip, was not one of the original 12. He hadn't walked with Jesus. He hadn't seen Jesus walk across the water. Scripture doesn't indicate that he, that he even possessed like a unique religious or spiritual heritage. Philip, we can assume, had no formal training. Philip didn't attend a seminary or possess a degree in theology. Philip is never mentioned as being an elder, and we don't have any of his sermons recorded at all in Scripture. You see, Philip, Philip came to faith in Jesus, like you, like me. And then he plugged into his church, and he started faithfully serving. Philip was a normal dude whose initial experiences are literally no different than ours. And yet, over a period of time, we don't know how long, Luke says that Philip, this man Philip, came to demonstrate a good reputation among the brethren, being known, according to the text, as a man full of the Holy Spirit, a man full of wisdom. When the apostles asked the church to seek out from among you seven men in order to take care of some of the practical needs that the growing church was facing, Philip was the second man after Stephen chosen to be a deacon. And note, Philip was chosen for this new position within the church for one simple reason. And don't overlook this. Philip was chosen to be a deacon because it was a role he was already filling. You see, Philip wasn't waiting for a title or some formal position to get busy serving Jesus and loving others. Instead, Philip was already proving himself to be a faithful servant. So when they were looking for faithful servants, he was right in the midst. You see, Philip was chosen to be a deacon because he was already being a deacon. Now, the first movement in Philip's life, when he goes from just being a member of this church to now possessing a position of authority within the church, occurred how? How does Philip go from just a normal guy, to now being given a position. It's simple. His faithfulness. Simple faithfulness. Because Philip was faithful over little, what was in front of him, God decides to increase his plate. Now the second movement in Philip's life occurs the next time we see him, which is Acts chapter 8. If you'll flip a few pages to your right. It's likely Philip has been a deacon, for a number of years when we're told in verse 1 that at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. The previous chapter, Stephen is, is, is martyred. 
As for Saul, the man who instigated this, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Now, don't miss this. The second movement in Philip's life, when he leaves Jerusalem and ends up in Samaria, it occurs for one simple reason. The first movement was simple faithfulness. The second movement was a difficult circumstance that arose completely out of his control. He had no control over what was happening here. As a matter of fact, life was good, wasn't it? It was good in Jerusalem. Ministry for Philip was, was fruitful. He was excelling in his role as a deacon. Then, without warning, his buddy, his friend Stephen, ends up being murdered. This man Saul, we're told, starts making havoc of the church. And Philip is now forced to scatter. Now, the grand irony, because as you get to chapter 8, it looks chaotic, out of control. But the irony is that this was all part of God's plan. As we would read, it would be through this persecution in Jerusalem that not only would many scatter out into the surrounding regions, taking the gospel with them, but Philip particularly would go down to the city of Samaria and he would preach Christ. Almost overnight, Philip the deacon becomes Philip the preacher. This man, charged with waiting tables and cleaning toilets and ushering, is now called into the mission field. Through an event, mind you, he has literally no power over. Never forget this, friend. Any event or circumstance that is completely out of your control still remains in his. Do you believe that? And since this is the case, you can trust that whatever you may be facing, or for that matter, whatever you may be experiencing today, right now, this past week, please know it's still part of God's larger will and plan for your life. You know, Philip, don't detach yourself from the humanity of the situation. I mean, he could have been bitter. At a minimum, angry at God, right? His friend had just been murdered for doing nothing but standing for Jesus. His church, the church that he loved, his community had come under fire. Nothing would ever be the same. Philip was forced from his job forced from his ministry, forced from his home, forced to an unfamiliar city in Samaria. And yet, notice the remarkable faith we see in Philip. The moment he arrives in Samaria, what does he immediately begin doing? <laughs> We're told that he preached Christ to them. Understand, such a reaction as we see with Philip only occurs when a person has come to fully trust in the providence of God. I love the fact 
that, that Philip. He shows up, and what does he preach? He just preaches Christ. And now remember, Philip has no formal training. He's not a polished speaker. Philip was a designated doer. But now he's placed into a position where the most pressing need in front of him isn't doing things, but proclaiming someone. The need is now evangelism. And notice, Philip, he's not here preaching a religious code, something to live by, rules to obey. Rather, Philip, he shows up, he recognizes a need, and he simply begins to tell these Samaritans about the person who had changed his life, this man named Jesus. He told them who Jesus is, what he did in his life, the transformation that had occurred, what he was willing to do in theirs. And Luke continues by telling us that the multitudes heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. For as we're told, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. What an amazing scene. Now don't overlook kind of a subtle detail. This awakening, this spiritual awakening among the Samaritans occurred as they were first hearing the words spoken by Philip, but secondly, it also occurred as they were seeing the power of God, where? Being practically demonstrated in and through Philip's life. They heard what he was saying, but they also saw the way that he was living, and both had a key component into what was occurring. As a preacher, Philip did more than just herald Jesus or tell them about Jesus. You see, Philip's life, it possessed a power that could be seen, like in a profound way. Philip's life validated his message, and his message was consistent with the life that he lived. Both things must exist for power. Philip preached Christ, not from an intellectual basis. He wasn't talking about things he had heard about, things he had read about. No, Philip is preaching Christ from the experiential level, something he had experienced, not just something he, he knew about, but something he, he knew internally. You see, he spoke of a Jesus he personally knew. Can I ask you just on a side note, like what makes your life any different from the unbelieving world around you? Is there a difference? Do people see the joy of the Lord? Or, or do they see a peace that could be described only as being otherworldly? Let me ask, do you demonstrate grace, the grace of God to those around you, to the neighbor that irritates you, to the coworker that bugs you, to the boss that's out to get you, do you show the love of the Father even to your enemies? Consider this. If people were only reaching conclusions about Jesus by looking at your life, not what you said, but how you lived, what conclusions would be reached? You know, I've mentioned this before. As a matter of fact, we addressed this last Sunday in our churchology study. But this is what so many get wrong about evangelism and about witnessing. You see, evangelism is not so much an activity you do, 
but a witness that you are. You see, it's a light that shines not from oneself, but from the light of the Spirit indwelling oneself. In his book, The Work of the Pastor, um, which we're all called to the ministry, and I would encourage encourage all of you to, to download it, find it, read it. William Still, he writes this. He says, quote, My whole view of the Christian's responsibility for primary evangelism is founded upon that belief that the greatest evangelistic and pastoral agency in the world is the Holy Spirit dwelling naturally in God's children so that Christ shines out of them all the time. He writes, we have to let our light shine, not hide it, and certainly not flash it, which draws attention to ourselves, but we should let its beam blaze out like a lighthouse believing that Jesus Christ is witnessing through us in and to the world. And such was Philip in Samaria. Now, since Saul had initiated this great persecution in Jerusalem, Philip ends up becoming the central figure behind this spiritual awakening occurring in the region of Samaria. Through events not of his own making, Philip the servant becomes Philip the preacher. He's called and he's commissioned and he's equipped to be God's man and God's timing to reap God's harvest, an incredible harvest. To say this Samaritan church was trending would have been an understatement. Like this church being led by Philip is bursting at the seams. Attendance and conversion rates were never higher. This church was new and it was fresh. And because of this work, Philip found himself in the spotlight. This Samaritan church was rocking and rolling, and Philip's ministry had never been better. When, look at verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is desert. <laughs> you want to talk about a wicked curveball, right? But God abruptly interrupts this season of vibrant, healthy, radical ministry by sending this angel to Philip with really weird instructions. First, he's told to leave Samaria. And if that weren't enough, notice the particulars of these new marching orders. The destination that Philip would be sent, he's, he's to leave Samaria. It's not that he's being sent to the populated centers of Jerusalem, or for that matter, Gaza. He's being sent where? According to the text, he's being sent to the road between the two. He's not even being sent to a, a populated area. He's being sent to a deserted road. Now, that is a, such a bizarre directive that Luke, our author here, he even goes out of his way to make sure we know that this area, so we're not confused, was nothing but desert. Now that instruction, this directive, it doesn't really make any sense, does it? I mean, why would God remove Philip from the midst of an incredible work happening in Samaria? Why would God send Philip to a place that's literally unpopulated? As a deacon, there's no tables to wait. As a preacher, there's, there's no one to hear a message. 
Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this would be the last place on earth you would send a gifted preacher. Now, knowing that his destination was to simply head, we're told, south along the road, which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, we're told in verse 27 that what happens? Philip arose and went. Philip here abruptly leaves Samaria. We can presume in the speed of which this happened, that it was unannounced. He gets new marching orders, he gets up and he goes. Doesn't tell anyone. And he proceeds to travel back through Jerusalem and begins the long, lonely walk through a hot desert down towards Gaza. Look back at verse 27. And behold, as Philip arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, now real quickly, what do we know about this particular man? First, Luke tells us this man of Ethiopia was a eunuch who had great authority, serving as kind of a type of secretary of the treasury under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This tells us this man was wealthy, and was powerful, that he was influential. But this detail that he was a eunuch also means that he was largely in servitude to the wishes of the queen. And Candace was not a specific person, but was a title for the queen of the Ethiopians. Luke also tells us that this man, and this is a really interesting twist, he had come to Jerusalem to do something specific. He had come, we're told, to worship. Now, while this man had traveled some 200 miles up from Ethiopia through Egypt to Jerusalem with the desire to worship the true God of Israel. You know, it's safe to reason his experience at the temple was hardly a positive one. Like for starters, because he was a Gentile of African descent, the furthest into the temple he would have been allowed would have been what's known as the court of the Gentiles. It's an outer courtyard. (laughs) Jesus, on two occasions, described this courtyard as being a den of thieves. (laughs) Let's just say the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, hardly possessed a worshipful environment. Beyond this, if the religious leaders appropriately applied Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, it's unlikely this man as a eunuch would have even been allowed into the outer court of the Gentiles. See, we're told in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, that he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Regardless, whether he got to the the outer courtyard or was kept out altogether, we are told here that as he's returning, sitting in his chariot, the man was reading... Isaiah the prophet. Now, though he had been turned away from the temple, or at a minimum was left disappointed by the charade of the outer courtyard, on a positive note, this man was able to use his influence and his power and his wealth to do something the normal man couldn't, and that was procure a copy of the prophet Isaiah. It's clear from our text that this Ethiopian, while there's much we don't know of him, we do know that he was a noble man 
on an even nobler quest. This man, and we're not told why, but he's searching for the truth. The world and all that she had offered him, because he had wealth and power, but it had left him empty, and, and religion had now left him wanting. You see, this Ethiopian desired a real, life-altering encounter with God. And while his situation was disappointing, as he's making his way back to Ethiopia, there were two things going for him. One, he's digging into God's Word. That's a good thing. And two, while he was in desperate need of someone to help him make sense of the things that he's reading, God happened to be one step ahead of him. Verse 29, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go and overtake this chariot. Now, don't forget, Philip is walking on this lonely, dusty road from Jerusalem to Gaza when this chariot and all of its entourage comes blazing past him. I mean, how else would he have even noticed the chariot? And as Philip is standing there, kind of admiring, taking in a really bizarre sight, this would be like, for, for some context, imagine you're in a little hoopty making your way on I-10 in West Texas. I mean, it's long, forgotten road. You're on your own, and boom, 10 Escalades, black tinted windows come blazing by you. Now you'd be like, I wonder who in the world that was, right? I wonder what's going on. You see, he sees these things. He's beginning to kind of wonder, I wonder who that is. I wonder, maybe this has something to do with what the Lord called me here for. And as these things are happening, Luke tells us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, instructs Philip to what? To go near and overtake or literally, attach yourself to the chariot. So verse 30, Philip ran, ran to him, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian replied, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, because none of you are laughing, your reading comprehension is excellent. Let me explain what's really taking place here. So here's Philip in this revival in Samaria. God says, go. All right, God. And he's making his way from Jerusalem to Gaza, this dusty, lonely road. Kind of scratching his head. I'm really not sure why I'm here. Boom, chariot passes him. That was weird. And then the spirit says, listen, Go and overtake the chariot. Okay. So he hikes up his robe and boom, there he goes. Now notice, all he does is he, he overtakes the chariot, which means here's the Ethiopian with the scroll reading from Isaiah the prophet. Philip has been told to catch him. So there's the Ethiopian and his chariot reading out loud. And where is Philip? just right next to the chariot, because that's all he's been told to do. Now, if you're the Ethiopian, you know, have you ever been to a stoplight and you were picking your nose and then you realize, wait a second, someone might see me and you kind of look over and then someone's just kind of staring at you 
And it's that like really, imagine you're the Ethiopian and you look at lonely, dusty road and there's this probably five foot two Jew running next to you in the middle of the desert. Just, what's up, man? Holy Spirit just said to run and catch you. He runs long enough to recognize that the man's reading from Isaiah the prophet. How long did that take? If I were to flip to a random section of Isaiah the prophet and started reading, how long would it take you to be like, oh, I recognize it. That's Isaiah the prophet. 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And at some point, look at how it plays out. Philip looks up. He's like, hey, you have any idea what you're reading? And the Ethiopian, as they're still going, because why would you stop? Is like, I've got no clue. They have a conversation out the window. And then, and he asked Philip at this point to what? Hey, stop the chariot. Can you come up and sit with me? And then look, verse 32. And the place in the scripture which he read was this, and this is Isaiah 53, that he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth, speaking of Jesus, and his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the Ethiopian answered Philip, and he, and he said, I ask you, or in the, in the original tense, I'm begging you, of whom does the prophet say this? Is he saying this of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Christ Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with your heart, let's do it. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So the man commands the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, while Philip only saw a lonely desert road stretching from Jerusalem to Gaza, God knew that there would be a man from Ethiopia traveling the same road at the same time, reading a particular passage of Scripture, and that this man would be in desperate need of someone to share the gospel with him. See, without Philip knowing it, God had another harvest that was primed for the reaping. And you know, to be honest, though many in the same position would have hesitated to have made the type of move that Philip did. You know, one, when your obedience to a command would take you out of the midst of this amazing work in Samaria. Like, like where obedience to God would move you from a, a position of security to uncertainty, from a sure thing to who knows, from a hotbed of success to ministry in a desert. But once Philip heard from God, he acted immediately. You see, this third movement in Philip's life and this incredible event that followed was only made possible how? Well, first, simple faithfulness, right? And then it was a, a difficult circumstance. But now we see that this, this next movement occurred because he was willing to what? Obey God's word. God said something and he obeyed it. And don't overlook the fact that Philip was really only armed 
with a one-word command, right? Go. And Philip went. Philip didn't need an explanation, didn't ask God for the details. All Philip needed to act in obedience was, was instruction, marching orders. You see, Philip trusted God. And we can say that this man's life was lived in total surrender. And while obedience to God's word indeed got Philip to this desert road, the fourth movement, or really the catalyst for everything that followed, was what? It was his sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Notice, this entire story begins with God giving Philip a command that contained a destination. What did Philip do? He went to the destination, went to this road, traveled south, as he was told, and waited. Didn't do anything until God gave him more instructions. Then, as a result of his obedience to be exactly where God told him to be, the Spirit breaks the silence, a second command, Philip catched the chariot, and once again, Philip responds to God's leading with a simple faith. He runs, he catches up, he, he runs alongside. And it was only then, after continued obedience that seemed probably bizarre at best, that what happens? God's plan slowly starts to come into view when he hears the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Go to Samaria. That, okay. Man, God works. Go to the desert, this road. That makes no sense. But I trust you. So I'm on this road. Go catch the chariot. This seems stupid, but okay. I believe you've got a plan. How long am I supposed to be running? Everything's a head scratcher. Until one moment. When he hears this man reading from Isaiah, and he's like, oh, God, this is why I'm here. You see, if Philip hadn't been obedient and sensitive to the Holy Spirit, this exchange, this man's salvation may not have ever happened. You see, Philip understood that the best place for him to be was in the will of God. But he also realized that the only way to be in the will of God was to obey the commands of God given through his word and his spirit. Always remember, obedience to the simple commands of God is the only key by which you can unlock God's ultimate plan for your life. Now, if you're like me, the obvious question that jumps off the page is how did Philip hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, right? Spirit said to him, go, catch the chariot. He did. Like, how was Philip certain that God was actually speaking? That it wasn't just his mind playing games. And that could be a study all in and of itself. But I do want to say that the answer lies in four quick things. One, it's hard to hear the Spirit if a person isn't filled with the Spirit. And two... It's hard to hear the Spirit if you don't possess a desire to listen. And thirdly, it's hard to hear the Spirit if you don't begin to develop a sensitivity or familiarity with His voice. And four, you'll never know if the Spirit was leading if you're not willing to act upon a particular impression. I can't tell you how many exciting things have happened in my life when I got out of the blue 
this weird thought. And I called someone. I said, I hadn't talked to you in years. How you doing? You know what, man? My dad just died, literally, 30 minutes ago. And you just called me. Boom! Man, I know I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. I see someone walking up. Say, man, that person doesn't know it yet, but he's a follower of Jesus. And I just need to be that friend and to see that person come to faith. Walking with the Spirit, listening to the Spirit, obeying the Spirit, it's an incredible journey. Now, I'm, I'm amazed at a central idea that the story does illustrate for us. And it's, a, and it's a point that few discuss. Notice that there is no question from the, our story here that God evaluates ministry opportunities and he determines ministry success in a much different way than we do, right? Like though God sent Philip to Samaria because there was a harvest ripe for reaping, it's also true he sent Philip to this desert road for the identical reason. Don't miss that. You see, from God's perspective, we can assume one opportunity was not greater than the other, which is why God deliberately uses the same man for both. While mass evangelism, like we see in Samaria, undoubtedly brought God glory, it's evident individual one-on-one -on -one evangelism was just as important to the heart of God. You see, numbers don't always equate to greater ministry success. Or why would God call Philip from Samaria to this desert road, from a multitude to one? Consider that after declaring in Matthew 18, verse 11, that the Son of Man had come to save that which was lost, Jesus then poses a rhetorical question to his disciples. In the very next verse, he writes, he says this, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than the other 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. How interesting. I had no idea Hallison was going to introduce a song this morning. We sang the identical thing. You see, it's clear that this Ethiopian man, we know he is a genuine seeker who is in desperate need for God to reveal himself, right? I mean, he's in a situation where the world had ripped him off, cut him off. Religion had left him empty. But how amazing, friend, that God would not stand idly by and allow the cries of his heart to go unanswered, which is why he sent Philip. And once again, Philip's role, he doesn't invite the Ethiopian to church so that he can encounter Jesus. Instead, Philip is sent to him where he's at along his road to introduce him to Jesus. In the book of Acts, we see this reality, God's heart for the one soul. We see it demonstrated over and over and over again. You see, God always responds to a genuine seeker by sending what? One of his servants to preach Jesus. For example, the apostle Peter was sent by God to the house of Cornelius. 
Paul would be sent to find the man of Macedonia, the man in the vision. And in this instance, Philip, God's man, is sent to a desert road to reach this Ethiopian eunuch. Who is God sending you to reach? You know, if you're like me, sometimes it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the entirety of the lost world around us that we lose sight of the lost soul right in front of us, right next to us. The waitress, the neighbor, the friend. See, understand, that person that you're thinking of this very moment, and there's the name in your mind. The reason that person is on your mind is that God knows they're seeking and he wants to send you to tell them about Jesus. And like Philip, will you go? Will you be obedient? You know, the perfect example of this is really Jesus' own experience on the cross. In the midst of a divine work designed to save the masses, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. In the midst of this cosmic, massive work for the world, what did Jesus do? He took time to care and minister to the needs of that one man hanging on a cross next to him. I love that. Well, there's one final movement to Philip's life, and it's, <laughs> needless to say, much different than being led through simple faithfulness or, or moved to new areas through difficult circumstances or being obedient to God's word or possessing a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. You see, sometimes God will lead us in such a supernatural way that it's kind of hard to explain and in many ways can even defy reason. Look at verse 39. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Astos, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. According to Luke's account, as soon as this Ethiopian emerged from the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. Now this Greek phrase, caught away, it's the word harpazo, which means to snatch out. In the Latin, this word is translated as raptura, or what we get in our English as raptured. Literally, the Spirit of the Lord raptured Philip. And because the eunuch saw him no more, it can be reasoned that this act of snatching Philip away, initiated by the Spirit of the Lord, literally resulted in his body physically disappearing from one location to then reappear in another. Teleportation? I don't know. Like, in this instance... Philip was caught away from the baptism only to be physically placed elsewhere on earth. And the story closes with the Ethiopian, right, going his way and Philip finding himself in this northern town of Gaza, working his way up the Mediterranean coast, preaching in all the cities before finally settling in the northern seaport of Caesarea. And Luke's narrative here will shift away from Philip, but not before he's mentioned one final time in the book of Acts, Acts 21, verse 8, Luke tells us, as the apostle Paul and Luke and a whole entourage are making their way to Jerusalem, we're told on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed, we came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of, you want to guess? Philip the Evangelist, 
who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. And this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. It would appear that Philip here, he eventually settles in Caesarea. And what does he do? He just continues serving Jesus. It's likely he found a job, probably planted a church. Over time, he gets married. He ends up having four daughters who grow up to love Jesus and have a ministry of their own. And you know, I find that really incredible that that is where God ultimately led Philip. That that was the final destination. Like he goes from being a simple servant to a deacon in Jerusalem. From a deacon in Jerusalem to a preacher in Samaria. From a preacher in Samaria to an evangelist on the road to Gaza. From this encounter with the Ethiopian, he finds himself in Caesarea, where he settles down and becomes a husband and a father. Not only is God's hand evident every step along the way, but in the end, what is Philip's legacy? Philip's legacy ends up being his family. Not necessarily his time in Samaria or this Ethiopian. As a misfit, Philip's life challenges us in many ways. It challenges me. May I ask, are you willing to serve? Because it's a natural response to God's grace? Or are you waiting for a title or a position? If a difficult situation were to arise out of your control, may I ask, like Philip, are you willing to trust God and to see his larger purposes? Are you still willing to preach Jesus? Friend, if God said go, are you willing to obey? Even when it doesn't make sense and it may come at a personal cost? Beyond this, how far are you willing to go to share Jesus with that one lost soul he's placed along your path. Do you possess the same type of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's leading? Do you want that sensitivity? In the end, God's supernatural hand was all over Philip's life. And his journey, <laughs> I think it's safe to say it was incredible. What a life. Philip was a normal guy. He became one of the first deacons he was a normal dude that God used to be his instrument in a great spiritual awakening that occurred in Samaria. Philip was God's man to reach this Ethiopian, who, by the way, ends up taking the gospel back to Africa. Philip, when it was all said and done, was a man that God used to leave behind a wonderful legacy of godly children who were also serving Jesus. And I guess my point is that if God could use such a man as Philip and do all of these things in and through his life, what makes you any different? As a misfit, God can use you in incredible ways if you're willing to obey. Father, Lord, we love you.